Would you grab your Bible and turn to Malachi chapter 2? Just one verse today, but that doesn't mean we're getting out early. All right, we're going to finish up Malachi 2. So we're going to read verse 17. So you have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? Well, by this. By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or by asking this question, where is the God of justice? You may be seated, kids. You guys can take off. Meet your teachers in the foyer. So do you have anybody in your life who is like this? They just cannot ever be happy about anything that's going on. They've got to complain about it. If you're in the car, it's never hot enough or it's too cold or whatever the case may be. And and they're just one who constantly is finding something to complain about regardless of of what is happening um, with something. And maybe you don't have somebody like that, but I bet you probably do. But maybe you know somebody in your life who promises a lot of things, but never seems to really follow through on what they promise. And they've always got a lot of creative reasons as to why they are not following through um, with something. But then they're bothered when you kind of point out that you promise stuff and you don't ever follow through with it. And so they're a little bother that you have an issue with their empty words. So this idea is where we find ourselves in verse 17. So we are about five weeks into this. It's going to end up being about 12 weeks. Look at uh, Malachi. And they are constantly being reminded by God. God sharing with them, again, initially, originally saying to them, I love you and I want you to know that I love you. And then God's sharing his heart about some issues that were present in the nation. And each time God shares something, they say back to God, God, we don't know what you're talking about. We don't see it. That really, what your perspective really doesn't describe us. And so as we come to the text today, it's a little bit stronger. I mean, God has, God has got, a, got another really clear thing to say to them that they have been saying um, back to them. But we're at another place now where the priests and the people um, are continuing in their faithless worship of the Lord. They're continuing to fill his ear with empty promises and things that they are going to continue to do. And so God speaks to them and they show again that they have no clear understanding as why God has an issue with what is happening in the nation. So as we come to just this one verse at the end of chapter 2, we're going to hear some of the same objections that people have today in our generation as to why they're not going to follow the Lord or why they question what He does or why they're not going to believe. They kind of feel as if, kind of like people do today, that if there is a God, He's kind of aloof. He's not really interested in the world in which we live in because if he was interested, does he not see the trouble that is everywhere? Not just in our country. Does he not know what's happening in the Middle East? Does he know about this thing? Is he interested in this? And so there are a lot of questions that are connected with, is God good or has God changed? Is his standards changed? And is he changed with the times or is God consistent? And so Judah has this issue. It looks like to them that God has changed. That he's got another perspective of his word. And so they're kind of feeling like things are different. God's changed. The word's changed. His promises. They look around and they recognize this is not what he said. This is not what the prophet said. It was going to be like when we came back from the 70-year exile. Why does God not 
do something about evil people who are in charge of things, running governments, running other things, and it just looks like that he's not concerned about what is happening and taking place in the world. So they charge God with not being good, with actually seeing evil as something good. And so they charge him with this, which is one of the worst things that can be done. If you will remember, there's an instance in the Gospels where Jesus, well, let me just read it and point out a couple of things here. This is from Matthew 12, 22, if you'll listen to this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute. I can't think of anything. I guess there could be some worse things. But can you imagine being demon-possessed, not being able to talk, and not being able to see? So they bring this man to Jesus, and the text says this, that he healed them. Can you imagine what that moment's like? Sometimes I wish the New Testament just said some more things. Not that we need that. Can you imagine what that was like in that room that day? Demon-possessed man, can't see and he can't talk. Brings him to Jesus. Jesus heals him of the demon, not being able to speak, and now being able to see. So they say this. It says, all the people were amazed... And they said, can this be the son of David? Is this the Messiah? But the Pharisees were present. And when they heard it, they said, well, it's only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Now, Jesus is going to show them that he's God because he knows their thoughts. They're saying this in their head. So it says this, knowing their thoughts... He says out loud so that they can hear that he knows what they are saying in their head. And so Jesus said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. In other words, why would Satan do that? Why wouldn't Satan just want to keep this man Blind, mute, and demon-possessed. Why in the world would Satan want to divide his kingdom and see this man healed? He doesn't do good. He's a liar. And he says, And no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. So then how can his kingdom stand? So if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, Jesus says, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, you need to know this, Pharisees, then the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's present among you. And then he says this, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. So whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me Scatters, And then Jesus is going to bring all this down to a singular statement. He says, therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. See, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was this, attributing God to doing evil and affirming evil and being evil. And that's what they're doing in the text. He's healing this guy, which is being done by God's goodness and God's grace and by the power of the Spirit, and yet they're attributing this good work to Satan. And so this is blasphemous to attribute evil to Christ's actions. But this is what was happening at the end of the Old Testament. It was as if people had felt as if God had abandoned the world and Because if he hadn't, then why is he letting things continue on the way that they are? But if there is a God, and if he still cares, then he would do something immediately about this. And this is the problem sometimes that happens in our lives, and let's be honest. We want to tell God when he needs to do something, how he needs to do it, And then we're upset about that instead of trusting him that he is in control of things. 
So I, I just want to remind us today, though chaos is happening in the Middle East and other parts of the world and things here in which we live have changed a lot, God has not forsaken us. God has not turned his back on anything in regard to worldly plight and anything that is happening and taking place. Sinful actions and destruction come mainly from human beings. We just need to simply look in the mirror and recognize what is happening with the hearts of people and what comes uh, from the sinful actions inside the hearts of people. So I remind us this morning that God is not bound by what we think He ought to do. And we should be careful to not charge Him with wrong with what He allows or with what He does doesn't line up with what we think is the most important thing for him to do. Now I want to point this out before we begin to walk through this text. It is of great concern when Christians are asking the same questions of doubt about God's goodness and God's nature that the lost world is asking. We are to be the kind of people who who are who will have questions. Questions are good. Questions where we ask God honest things, but questioning the nature of God is not a good thing. So sometimes we don't understand something, and so we go to God with a question, or we go to the Scripture and we read to find an answer to something. But to question the goodness of God and His nature is not something that we should do, for we are to be people of trust and unwavering faith knowing that he is sovereign over all things. So this generation in Malachi has questions for God, again, which is a good practice. But then there is the questioning of God as if we are in charge, and that is not good. So they accuse him of not being good, of not being just. This is a bit of a reminder from Malachi chapter 1. As they looked around at their generation... At the end of the Old Testament, they look at their culture, they look at the nations outside of Judah, and they're just wondering, God, why do the nations who don't worship you and have all these idols and they have all of these religious practices that your word says people shouldn't do, why does it seem like you're blessing them and now we've been back, we've rebuilt the temple You sent us away. We've learned the lesson, God, of our rebellion. Now we've come back. The walls around Jerusalem are restored. The temple is there. People are coming to Jerusalem to worship. Why are we not getting the blessings and the benefits of that? And we've been walking through this in this book. The reason they're not getting the blessings is because their worship was faithless. It was not engaged with God. They were bringing bad sacrifices. They were living for themselves. Men, as we looked at last week, were just abandoning their families and getting a new virgin wife and leaving their old wife and children to be abandoned in the land. And and all of this is happening and taking place. And they're coming to the temple where now these men have homes where idol worship is happening. And then they're coming to Jerusalem to worship and offering sacrifices. And God says, I'm not going to accept that. Because you are to offer a sacrifice that comes from purity. And that's in line with what the law tells you to do. And they're not doing this. And so God says, I'm not going to accept that. And now they're like, well, that's not fair. Why not? We've come back and we've kind of done everything that you've told us to do. But if you will read Haggai, Nehemiah, here... They're not doing what God has told them to do. Oh, they did for a little bit. Ezra was used to kind of bring about a bit of a revival for a while, but that that didn't last very long. And now here in Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, they have gone back to their old ways. The religious life, economics, family, poverty was rampant in Judah. Plus, they're being led by corrupt priests. People were being forced into deep oppression and, and almost kind of slavery giving themselves over 
um, into this. And so as they survey it all, their heart has grown hard. They are spiritually blind. And they have concluded that God is not doing what God had promised. So therefore, only one conclusion that we can come to, God is not good. And God is not just in regard to what is happening. God should be, they're thinking, should be putting down the nations who blatantly live outside of his ways. And he should just exalt Judah to a prominent place. So again, I want to stress, they deduce that none of the issues in Judah at this time have anything to do with them. It has everything to do with God. God is not doing what God said he would or God has changed or God no longer is concerned about justice. We live in a day and time, and you see it, and, and hopefully we, you and I fight against this in our own lives, where it is always someone else's fault for the way in which we live and the way in which we do things. We need to be the kind of people that own up to the reality of the own issues that we create and cause in our own lives. And I tell you, our current culture plays this game really well where everybody else has done something to me or else I would be better by now. They, they, whoever they is, keep me consistently from ever healing and moving forward in life. And for a number of years now, it has become increasingly the way of our culture, and it's drifted at times even inside the church where it's been designed, and people talk about this, is that nobody has to be responsible for anything that they do anymore. For the real trouble is always outside of us. It's never inside of us. And God doesn't even intervene. He doesn't seem interested in what is happening and taking place. And so therefore, I don't have to be accountable for the things in my own life. Somebody else is responsible for that. And I tell you, when a nation lives this way, when somebody in the family lives this way, then there's going to be continued chaos and confusion and disillusionment about things. So here at the end, they're like, okay, Lord... What's the deal? And so that brings us to our first point this morning is that's what they're doing. They're just wearying the Lord with words without meaning. So this is not the first time that God has told them this. But this is is what I want to talk about here for a moment is wearying the Lord with words without meaning. So let me give you a couple other places where this has been the case in their history. This is not just the end of the Old Testament thing. So before the northern kingdom, the ten tribes were taken away by the Assyrians through Isaiah and then also through Jeremiah said these things. This is Isaiah 1.14. God says, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me and I am weary of bearing them. Isaiah 43.22 and following. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob. But you have been weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. And then in verse 30, uh, 24, you have, not brought, you have not bought me sweet cane with honey, with money, or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices. But you have burdened me with your sin, and you have wearied me with your iniquities. Then Jeremiah writes these words. You have rejected me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward, so I have stretched out my hand against you and destroyed you, and I am weary of relenting. This is quite the indictment from God concerning the nation after they were supposed to have learned the lesson of obedience. God has gotten to the place where, and I'll take my glasses off, where he's he's like, Roses, he's like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of hearing you, my covenant people, when all I have done is show you. 
faithfulness after faithfulness after faithfulness. I have rescued you. I have rescued you. I have sent prophets to you. I have given my good law to you. And over and over, all you want to do is to go your own way. And now you've gone your own way. And I've told you that when you came into the land, if you would walk with me, this would bring great blessing to you, great satisfaction, great filling in your life. And you have over and over and over again gone your own way. And now, to top it all off, you want to say to me that I'm not good when all I have done is show you how good and holy and righteous and how I have loved you with a love that you cannot fathom. And so God just says to them, I'm tired of hearing it. You know how tired of hearing it he is? He's not going to send them any more prophets. There's going to be no fresh written words for 400 years. And they're about to enter into this time of silence. Now God was still speaking in the intertestamental period because God speaks from the law. They would have priests. There would be a remnant of people that would faithfully walk with them. But for the most part in the intertestamental period, they wouldn't walk with him either. And what comes out of the intertestamental period are people like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who still priests, leaders, religious leaders, who just want to fight against God and just want to add to the Word of God and put burdens onto the people of God. And so God's at this point and He's like, I'm weary, I am tired. By the way, the Old Testament tells us that God doesn't get tired. And yet here, making a point, saying this, He who is always ever alive, God, has grown so weary of a group of people saying that they love Him. I love you. I love you. We are doing well, God. Look, God, how well we are doing. And God's like, no, you're not doing well. And I'm tired of hearing your false testimony. This word weary here, I think we have it up on the screen. This word weary here, some of parents, you know this. If you've got kids who like to complain. It means to provoke and to actually work at irritating someone until they come to the point of exhaustion. So it's not just somebody, well, I don't like this, I don't like this, I don't like this. It's somebody who's intentionally just making sure everybody knows, I don't like this. And I'm going to intentionally irritate you to the point where you can't take it anymore. Now listen to this verse, Isaiah 40, 28. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So something seemingly not possible becomes possible where God just says, I am weary of hearing your false testimony. So think about that for a moment. He's not tired from sustaining and upholding the universe and the world. Not tired from that. But he is weary from hearing words from his people that are full of ignorance and pride because they are discontented and they should know him and they should know better. And this has exhausted him. So here you have the faithless priests and the people who have exhausted God's great patience with all of their ways of doubting, their self-justification about the things that they are doing. They look around and they see the Gentiles have wealth. They've got strength. They have security. But God, we don't. And so they look at themselves and just say, how unfair is this that we are your people and we are continuing to struggle You see, the underlying issue is that they were taking no responsibility that they were the cause of the issue that was happening in in their lives and in the land. And they'd fooled themselves into thinking that they were doing enough and doing okay spiritually, even though Malachi has been telling them, you're not doing well. This is what God has to say to you about this and about this and about this. 
So let me say this, and we're going to move on uh, here in just a moment. They felt as if God's favor could only be seen in whether somebody had worldly prosperity. God is for me when all my crops are growing like crazy. My, my cows are having lots of calves. Fruit trees are doing this. The grapes are doing this. Everything is going well. That's the only way that I can determine if God is good is if I'm getting more stuff. And you can see in the Old Testament, and you can see in the New Testament, you can see in church history, that that's not the only way to determine whether God is being good to someone. It's not just always about financial things, but this is kind of where they are. This is an early version of what we call the prosperity gospel. They wanted an Old Testament prosperity gospel. And yet as they did that, they wanted to live however they wanted to live and were expecting God to just go ahead and bless that. And this becomes a real danger for a follower of Christ to see spiritual blessing or spiritual significance connected only to monetary blessing. And so they are charging God with not being just and not being good. And God says, I'm tired of hearing it because I've shown you how much I love you and how much I care for you. And so one of the huge things in our day and time and our age is exactly what we see in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve sinned. Now listen to this. Watch this. They've not known sin at all. So now Eve eats the fruit. She gives it to Adam. Adam sins. And you know what their new fallen nature does? They didn't have to have it modeled for them. They didn't have to learn it. You know what immediately does? God comes to the garden and they go and they hide. And then God calls them out. They come out. They talk to God. And it's interesting what happens. They immediately, y'all remember what they did? They pin the blame on who? Themselves or someone else? Someone else. So this is what it says. So the man said, so again, they didn't have to learn this. This was not modeled for them. This was their first response to God concerning sin. So the man said, Lord, this is actually your fault. The woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. In other words, here's what Adam says. Lord, when it was just you and me and the animals, remember that? That was awesome. I didn't do this kind of thing. I didn't do this. But you decided to give the woman to me. Do you know what she did, God? She took some of the fruit. Now watch what happens. She took some of the fruit and gave it to me. And then he speaks the truth. And it shows how easily you and I can quickly fool ourselves. He now has to say, she gave me the fruit. And what does he say? And I I ate, I ate. Well, Eve, I guess has had it modeled by Adam now. Is like, okay, I can join in the blame game. Easy to point. So God says, what's this you've done, Eve? This is 3.13 of Genesis. And the woman said, well... The serpent deceived me. He did it. But then you know what she says? Same thing Adam did. But I ate. And this is the case. If you want to get stuck in your sin and you want to have a cycle of of wrestling with having an alive faith with God, you blame everybody else always for your problems and you'll stay stuck in your issue. But when you and I take responsibility for the way things are in regard to our sin, there is a freedom that comes. And so God here says, I am so tired of hearing you talk. When you look back at the, old, the entire Old Testament and you see how they always drifted from God, we could easily say how dumb they were. I would never... Don't ever say that about people you read in the Bible because we are very much like them if we are not surrendering 
to the Lord. And so they are saying, you aren't blessing us, God, as we think we rightly deserve, but I just want to say this, he was giving them what they did deserve. So here's what happens. So God says, I'm tired of hearing this. And now they say back to God that they consistently do, and they'll do it seven times in this book called Malachi. They will throw a question back at God. And so so what I want to do now is look at the next part of 17. And so God says, I'm tired of hearing this. You are wearying me. So they throw the question back to God. But you say, how have we wearied him? So I want to walk through four things that happen here that are important for us to note. And these are doubts or questions that lead to having a false view of God's goodness. So the first one is, is when we begin to doubt God, we will consistently just say empty words back to God. And that's what they are. They are wearying Him with their questions. And so they they say back to God, God, I don't know what you're talking about, that we're wearying you. We don't have any idea about that. We've got it together, God. Far more than the wicked nations around us. So why are you blessing them over us? We are your people. And so they seem to desire God to give them some more specific details as what they've done. But let me just say this, that as they ask this question, God, we need some more details because we don't have any idea what you're talking about. God's going to give them the answer and they're not going to agree with it. They've already decided they're not going to agree with it. They have shown that they're not going to agree with it. So they're like, what are you talking about? And so even as they ask this, they're already going to, we know, reject what his answer is. And so he's been being honest with them, and he's been sharing with them. These are the things that are there, and they're like, well, I don't see it. In the beginning, God says, I love you. And they're like, well, how have you loved us? We really don't see that you've been loving to us. So it's not, in a sense, a surprise to me that they are responding in this manner as it is clear that they cannot see truth anymore because they have walked away from it. It's exactly what the Lord's half-brother wrote in James, chapter 1, verse 22. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is just a hearer of the word and doesn't walk in the word, is not a doer, He's like a man who looks intently at a mirror at his natural face. For he looks at himself and then he goes away and he immediately is like, well, what what do I look like? I just, he, he forgets about what he looks like. Then James writes, but the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So they are just, what are you talking about, God? We're doing everything that you've asked us to do. And God's like, no, you aren't. Now hear this, church. Everybody listen? Matt, are you listening? Okay, just got to check, make sure Matt's awake. Listen to this. One of the reasons a Sunday morning gathering is so important or a life group gathering, uh, student ministry on Wednesday nights, is we need consistent reminders of how much we need God. Now listen listen to what the writer of Hebrews writes. You encourage one another every day. How do you encourage one another every day? By seeing one another, by being in the life of other people. So he says, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today... For what reason? Why do we need constant encouragement? As long as it's called today, the writer says, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. You live distant from God and you blame everybody else and we, we blame everybody else for the way that we are and never take responsibility of that, then we will be deceived by the deceitfulness that comes connected to sin. And so one of the reasons it's important to be together is for us to be reminded, not that others, oh boy, 
Look at that guy. I know he's a sinner. No, when we come together, we are reminded that we all are. And we're all in desperate need of Jesus. And so we encourage one another when we come together through the word, as long as it is called today to remind one another to not buy in to the lie of the world and be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. So stay near to him, stay connected. And one of the ways you do that is stay connected to people so that they can encourage you. And so here they are, just like God, how in the world have we wearied you? We're coming, we're saying the right things, we're singing the right things. We're doing the feasts, we're doing everything. You told us to be obedient, it would bring blessing. We're being obedient, it's not bringing blessing. It's not bringing about what you promised. So we might as well just do our own thing and get what we want out of this life because you're not being good enough in the manner in which I think you need to be good enough to me. Now hear this. When they read the prophet's writings, God did promise a great and glorious future for the nation. But now they're still being oppressed by a foreign king. The nations around them seem to be doing so much better. And they are disappointed with God. Have you ever been there? Where you're disappointed with God? So let me give you another example. When they built Solomon's temple, it would have been an unbelievable thing to see. I wish I could have seen Solomon's temple. I mean, it, it just, it was a marvel of architecture. It was a marvel of beauty, the gold, the magnificence that was connected with it. And then it was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. So now the exiles come back and they begin to rebuild the temple, laying the foundation that's there. And there were still some people alive that had seen Solomon's temple. So when you come to the prophet Haggai in this two-chapter book, that really has a lot of great truth in it, those who remembered the grandness of Solomon's temple, when they began to rebuild the new temple, they cry. Not out of joy, but they cry because the new temple is not going to be as grand as the old temple, and so they're disappointed that what what the future is going to hold is not going to be as great as what the past knew with Solomon's temple. And through Haggai, God speaks and says this, No, this new temple is actually grander than the old temple. And the reason it would be grander is that Jesus himself would walk into this new temple. He would be present there. But they're just... So the Bible speaks about it in Ezra. It speaks about it in Haggai. This old, old generation that had come back, they're like, God, we're kind of disappointed. We wanted a better building. Now listen, church. Buildings are good and important, and we want nice things. But it is far more important that our heart is deeply engaged with the glory of Christ than a building. And so here, again, just their consistent disappointment with God. And I tell you, a lack of gratefulness of God's goodness always comes from a heart that is filled with sin. So the issue still is that they are only examining God, putting God on trial and not looking at their own hearts. Could it possibly be, just suggesting it this morning, that many of the issues in our lives have zero to do with God and we kind of think He's uninterested at times in us, could it be that 100% of the issues in our lives are us? That we hold the responsibility with that. So let me give one more. I had plenty of time. So listen to this. One of the most beautiful stories is in Luke chapter 15. The son comes to his father one day, the younger son, and says, hey, I want my inheritance and I want it now. 
And the father knows that he can't force the son to love him. So he gives the son his inheritance. And the son goes to a distant country. And he spends all of the inheritance of his father's hard-earned money that he'd invested in wild, riotous living. And then a famine came in the distant country. By the way, the famine always comes in the distant country of rebellion because you spend it all and there's no life there. So he has to go and connect himself to a man who says, I'm hungry, I need some help, okay, you can feed my pigs. This is a Jewish man now hanging around pigs. So he's out there throwing this slop. It's really, it says pods there, but it's really when you look at the word there, he's throwing this kind of soupy, yuck stuff that stinks, and he's throwing it to the pigs. And as he does it, the fog of his sin kind of clears away. And he, watch this. He remembers this. It sure was good back at dad's house. And I think when he walked away that day, the dad was on the front porch and he looked at his dad's face. And I think he saw in his dad's face, you can come back again. So he goes away and he thinks to himself, okay, I'm going to go back home. But when I go back home, I need to have a speech. And so he goes back and he says, okay, this is, this is the deal. Father, he's going to tell God, he's going to tell his father this. Father, I've sinned against heaven and I've sinned against you. I have done such bad stuff. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But will you make me, though I am your son, will you make me like one of your servants? And I'll sleep in the servants' quarters because I've done so much bad that I can never really come back home and I can be a son. And he's memorized the speech and he comes back. And I've always, I've always wondered this, and I know it's a parable, but I think there's some of us were prodigal sons one day and we know about the truth of this. He's got this speech memorized and one day he looks and his father's running down the road. And his father just comes up to him and he's, Luke 15 tells us, he's telling the speech to the father and the father's kissing him on top of the head. Father's communicating to him, that's the past. And I know there are consequences with that. But I want you to know that I love you. Well, it's a beautiful thing. A ring gets put on, the fatty calf gets killed. But the young man has an older brother that's been out working in the field and he's walking back home. And he hears loud music. He hears that there's a party going on. And so he calls somebody to him. What in the world is going on? You haven't heard? Your brother is back and your dad was so excited about that that he's thrown a party and he's covered him with clothes and he killed that fattened calf. You know that fat calf? That, you know that one, the big one? Really beefy one, good one? He killed it and they're having a party in there. And I tell you, listen to this. Very powerful. Now the oldest son was in the field, and as he came near and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked, What do these things mean? And he said to him, Well, your brother has come. Your father's killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry, and he refused to go in. And so his father came out to him and entreated him. And he answered his father, Look, father, all these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. And yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But this son of yours, doesn't even call him his, his brother. This son of yours has come home. He devoured your property with prostitutes. And you killed the fattened calf for him? What's your problem, Dad? What is your problem that you would respond this way to my brother and your son? And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me and you have tasted and experienced and been around 
my goodness, and all that is mine, son, is yours. And so it is fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. See, this problem is just not an Old Testament problem. This is a New Testament issue too. God, you're not doing enough. And so empty words are spoken about the nature of God. And here's the second one. They question God's view of holiness. So they say in the next, the third part of verse 17, they begin to say this about God. Okay, God's changed. So everyone now who does evil is good in God's sight. God doesn't have a problem with evil people anymore. So when God looks at the Gentiles who do wicked things, they seem to be now acceptable. That's what the older brother's having a problem with. Dad, how in the world can you do this to your son who has squandered your wealth in riotous living? This word here, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, actually can be translated, they are now acceptable in the eyes of the Lord. So listen to what they're saying about God. They are saying this, it seems as if now sin leads to success. Instead of judgment. God, God's changed. He favors those who do evil and over those who do what is right. And so they lay the blame here at the feet of God. And they ask the question, where's the holiness that God seems to claim all the time that is a big priority for him? And so they question God's righteous justice. His faithfulness to his people. They question his promises uttered in the holy word. So God, where is this goodness? Where is this blessing of resettling the land, building the temple, restoring the city of Jerusalem? We don't see it. And I want to remind us this morning, and I hope you know this. You should know this. We must know this. God does not change. Culture changes. God does not. So they're like, God's changed. His holy nature, his concern about sin has changed. And he's changed his words about judgment. So God seems to have changed what he considers to be righteous and holy. His vision of what is holy must have changed or else things would be better for us. Since he's got an issue with us, calling us sinners. Well, we're, we're like the other nations. In a sense, they could have said this. Then why aren't we getting blessing? They're getting blessing. Why aren't you giving us blessing? God, you've changed. He doesn't change. Psalm 33, 11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of His heart from generation to generation. James 1, 17, Every good and Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Job came to learn this, 23.13, but God is unchangeable, and who can turn him back? What God desires, God does. See, the issue is they just didn't really hate wickedness. Malachi's generation didn't. God hadn't changed. God hadn't redefined what was evil in the culture. He hadn't redefined what was truth in the word there. So how does this happen? How does something like this happen with a believer? With it, the slide into seeing sin is okay sounds like this. A heart begins to want to do wrong and then begins to wish that whatever that issue is, shouldn't be off limits. Second step is this. Then there's just too much thinking that is connected with that um, where a doubt enters as to whether that thing is, well, it's not really wrong. I know it's been declared wrong, but you begin to think about it. Well, is, is it really wrong? And the third thing, thoughts arise that, well, it must be wrong only under certain circumstances. 
Some circumstances are okay if I do this. A fourth one is then someone sees the issue as not really on the bad list, even though I know the scripture says something about that, but it's not really on the bad list. And then the fifth justification is it's just rationalized that the issue is actually now good. So just go ahead and do it. And when something is rationalized that is known and has always been known to be evil enough to now make it under the category of good, then that will shape a life to lead it down a heartbreak road of sin and devastation. And I tell you, all around us right now are all kinds of mistaken beliefs, right? Just all around us that were once called evil or not appropriate for a common society. They're now called good, and some of them are called right. And what was good is now called evil. Douglas Murray is kind of a, he's not a believer, kind of a sociologist and historian. He's done a lot of study. I've been doing a lot of study, historical stuff on this issue and this issue. So listen to this. This is what he's discovered. At the end of every great Western civilization, when that civilization's reign began to falter, it's happened with every single one of them. It happened with the Greeks, and it happened with the Romans. This is what he discovered. I want you to listen to this. I hope you've heard everything, but I really want you to listen to this because this is the prominent thing in our day. What he discovered is, is that every great Western civilization that was in power and lost its might all became obsessed with gender, every, one of, every single one of them. Men became women. Women became men. It was a huge focus. Cross-dressing, switching of gender roles. And so somebody asked him the question, why? why? Why was that the case in regard to all of that? And why did that lead to culture falls? And, and, and he, he just said this, that getting rid of or dissolving the boundaries and norms of, of what's true and what's right where there's just an anything kind of goes, this is kind of the, the end result of when that culture falls. And the old norms, when things were stable, are now called evil and restrictive. And the new norms, where things, when they were practiced in the past, always brought brokenness and, and brought chaos to the land, are now being called and have been called in the past as life-giving and good for a culture. And so what does this mean for us today? Um, does that mean it's over? Well, no, nothing's ever over with God. All things are possible with God. But I think we ought to just note that history repeats itself. And it consistently does this. And so, so when, when God's people begin to say, no, I know that in the whole arc of history whether it's in the eastern part of the world, the middle part of the world, the western part of the world, all the world throughout history have seen that this is not good, but now we're calling it good. It's not going to turn out good. It's not. It's no possible way for it because it is outside of the bounds. And so for churches, for other ministry organizations, for the government to begin to, to affirm things that now charge God as allowing evil and being evil and approving of evil, then the only thing that's going to bring is ruin. Because we know that when we lose the sense of in our conscience of what is good, then we will begin to welcome absolutely anything as a false substitute. And this is where we are today. This is where Malachi's generation was. We should have known better. We should know better. And so we cannot do this. So they, they question God's view of holiness. Thirdly, they question what God actually finds pleasure in. As if the previous statement was not enough and shocking enough that they would say that to God, that God now delights in what's evil. They decide to go a bit further and they just say this about how God changed. Not only did he consider evil now good, but he actually must 
listen to this, he must delight in the nature of the wicked Gentile sinners. He now sees them with favor. And when you give favor to someone, you're, you're acting in kindness to them and you're approving of things. And so they question what God actually finds pleasure in. And that brings us to the fourth one. When we begin to doubt God's goodness, we question, in a sense, even, does he even exist? Where? And so they ask the question, where is the God of justice? Where is he? It sure doesn't look like he is that way anymore. So to question the Lord in this way is almost near to doubting that he even exists because his word is true and he is concerned about brokenness and confusion. So as we wind this thing down this morning, let me just make some application here that I think will be good for us. So they ask, where's the God of justice? Where is he? They're now at a place of deep despondency, greatly discouraged. They want justice. By the way, did you, have you noted this? They, they want justice for everybody else, but they want mercy and grace. They don't want justice for themselves, and, and God's been calling them out. But God, will you do justice to everybody else? But how about mercy? So God, what's the problem? Do you see that nation, as part of their religious system, they sacrifice children, and you're not destroying them. And you have an issue with us? Are you kidding me, God? I guess God's just going to give them a pass. He just lets people get away with mocking him, and they actually seem to be more blessed than the righteous. And yet he says he's concerned about righteousness and unrighteousness, but it sure doesn't look like it. Let me remind you of a truth of the Bible. Peter writes it. It's there in the Old Testament as well. That judgment always begins, Peter writes, at the household of God. God starts with his people first to get them awakened. So this happens always when we set our eyes on the circumstances in the world or of our lives and we just focus our eyes on that. And there's no truth checks. There's no examination of what we're thinking. Are we thinking biblically, et cetera, et cetera. And we can just kind of get to the place where we just think God himself doesn't really care about what's going on. Does he not see my life? It sounds something like this. Somebody would say maybe some street here in Collin County. You know, God, I have this health issue, and they're talking to themselves one day in their home that does not seem to get healed, and I'm not sure I can take time away to get surgery and do the rehab. One of my kids right now is also expressing spiritual doubts and seems to be turning away from the Lord. My business is struggling. I'm uncertain if there's going to be a future rebound in this part of the economy with my business. Boy, I'm hoping that car issue with my car is just the battery and it's not something worse. Boy, if that appliance goes out, I don't have any money, discretion, any money to, to, to replace that. And then this person steps outside to take care of something in the front yard and two houses down is the neighbor who's washing his new car. You know he drinks too much. He seems to keep getting better jobs or promotions. His health is good and he seems more fit and tan. They must have gone on another trip. How many have they gone on this year? He takes the name of the Lord in vain. He's a Democrat and has a pro-choice bumper sticker on his car. Did he get a boat? Looks like one in the garage there. His kids seem so well adjusted. When something breaks down at his house, he has the money to just replace that appliance immediately. It sure would be nice to have some discretionary money. He has never stepped inside of a church, even at Christmas or Easter. He's not even a creaster. looks like his wife got a new car. I think it's the same kind, but it looks to be updated. 
And why does his grass always seem so green? When this is how a Christian looks at the world, they won't have a hard time doing this toward God. I guess you don't care. I go to church. I give. I read my Bible. I serve. I faithfully tithe. And when all it seems to result in is that I stay in the same place of frustration and struggle, I never get ahead. So what's up, God? What's up, God? Let me read this for a second. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I became envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they seem to have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, they wear pride as their necklace and violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness and their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and they speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge of the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. They seem to always be at ease. They just seem to increase in riches. And then, this is Asaph speaking, says, in vain... I've kept my heart clean and I've washed my hands of innocence. For all day long have I been stricken and rebuked every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of the children. I hope you're getting the point. This is Asaph writing, Psalm 73. He's like, God, I'm struggling. And all the wicked in the land, they just get fatter and get good food. They get riches. Nothing ever happens. They scoff at you. They mock at you. I've got a clean heart. I've got clean hands. I I, want to walk with you, God. My heart's intention is to honor you. And he took his eyes off of God and he put it on people and he lost all perspective. Until... I'm thankful, I hope you are too, for the untils. So all day long I've been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God and then I discerned their end. Here's God's justice to the wicked. Truly you set them in slippery places and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment and swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. And when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in my heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was just like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you and you hold my right hand. So I want you to hear this as we finish. There are two desires that all of us in the room this morning could have. God, I just want to have anything I can have of the world. I want to have enough money to travel, live where I want to do, 
and do anything, or you can have this. And I want this. Nevertheless, God, I, I am with you. You hold my hand. You guide me with counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart fell. Sometimes I envy the wicked. But God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, listen what Asaph says, it is good to be near God. So I have decided to make the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all of his great works. So there's an option for us. In the end of the Old Testament, that's, this is where the, the generation was. God, we want stuff. Bless us. We don't want to be obedient to you, but bless us. Asaph was there. God, I just need more stuff. I want more stuff. You seem to be giving it that. But until I went and I was reminded that God is majestic and God is glory and God is good and He loves His people that I saw that I already had the treasure of treasures, which is a relationship in the nearness of God. So again, it's not wrong, and you know this, it's not wrong to have good things, but it is wrong to be consumed to think that they are going to fix our lives. There is only one fixer, and his name is Jesus. And we've got to remember that he is good, 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 good. I look around and, boy, you just go, what are we doing? What are we doing? What are we doing? And that has been the case since the Garden of Eden. What are we doing? But I, want, I would just want to remind us as we finish. He knows what he's doing. So we must be connected intimately with him. Let's pray.